I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. Hi there and welcome to Stock Club, a podcast brought to you by My Wall Street. I'm Mike and joining me on today's episode are Amory and Rory from the My Wall Street analyst team. Today we're talking about Spotify and the havoc Joe Rogan has been causing the company. New York Times' acquisition of Wordle, and we break down a number of earnings reports from this past week. I was going to open today's podcast making fun of Kanye West's surprising takedown of NFTs, which I didn't really expect from him. But instead, I am going to use it to congratulate Irish company Wayflyer for reaching unicorn status. This week, they raised 160, 150, 160 million, 150 million at a $1.6 billion valuation, making it the sixth Irish unicorn. So well done, lads. Uh, hopefully we'll add you to the My Wall Street app soon. Rory Amory, could you name any of the other six? Stripe. Stripe. Well, technically, actually, there is seven because Stripe is technically started in Silicon Valley, but I'll give it to you. Um, Intercom. Intercom, yeah. Is Plaid uh, Irish? No. Nope. God, I should know these, shouldn't I? <laughs> <laughs> I'll, I'll, uh, I'll transferwise? That's, that's, no, transferwise in there. It's uh, Work Human, Fenergo, Let's Get Checked, and Flip Dish. Oh, I didn't know any of those. Yeah, I was I, very impressed that we had that many unicorns. But anyways, moving on. So in 2020, Spotify signed a deal with Joe Rogan to host this podcast, the Joe Rogan Experience, exclusively for $100 million. Spotify has found itself in hot water ever since as Joe Rogan has a habit of spreading misinformation about COVID-19, vaccines, and some other questionable viewpoints. It all came to a head last week when Neil Young, in protest of the spread of misinformation, gave him an ultimatum. They can have Rogan or Young, not both. When Spotify failed to act, Young removed his library of music from the platform. Rory, Spotify seems to be trying to toe the line here between tech platform and media publisher, but... Joe Rogan is kind of a Spotify employee, no? They paid him $100 million for the rights to his podcast. This is a bit of a distinction between, say, Facebook or Twitter or YouTube policing their own platforms. Yeah, you're right to say they're towing the line. And I think the reason they've been kind of quiet up to this point, essentially not putting their cards on the table, is because it's actually kind of a quite complicated situation they've got themselves into. Um, one that they probably could and should have anticipated with this particular content creator you know we've had this debate for years now about platforms versus media companies and where does one draw the line and spotify definitely added a new dimension to this argument as you said by i mean you say turning joe rogan into employee but more like you know making him a kind of an exclusive content creator for them if we kind of take a step back and think about spotify's overall ambition in the podcasting space they're trying to essentially become the dominant aggregator in terms of podcasting and when that's your strategy you want to be seen to support content creators and you want to be delivering all the content that anyone wants in one space if we were to take an example of let's say kind of google who is the dominant aggregator of websites google really doesn't ever want to get into a debate about what should and shouldn't be on the internet if we were just to kind of remove any kind of moral argument there would be from a business standpoint they want people they want whatever people want to see on the internet to be on the internet because the more people searching and finding what they want, the more people they have to sell advertising to. 
Spotify is kind of thinking much in the same terms. It doesn't want this debate. It, it doesn't want it to be dragged into it. And they probably wouldn't be dragged into it if they weren't paying for this exclusivity deal. When we come to things like Spotify versus Facebook, you know, the thing, the difference there is Facebook kind of fires content in front of people using their algorithm, essentially promoting some forms of content and not for others. Whereas if you think of like a podcast and Joe Rogan's podcast is a very good example here. Every week, there's about 11 million people who actively choose to listen to him for like three hours. And people tend to kind of stick to listening to podcasts they like because with podcasts, discovery can be quite difficult. They're not very shareable. And, and you typically have kind of a set amount of time that you spend listening to them. Um, you know, like I listen to them when I'm going for a walk or cleaning the house. And that's so those hours are like my podcast hours. I don't ever really kind of sit down and decide to listen to a podcast. So Spotify is kind of caught in this kind of strange space, almost having an existential crisis, really, where it's trying to drive advertising revenue through podcasting by signing exclusive deals to the most popular podcasts. And remember, like, this is a good strategy generally because you just need one exclusive podcast that people listen to and that'll kind of mushroom out into loads of podcasts that, that aren't exclusive. But now this is potentially hurting their music subscription business. And the idea of combining the two in one company just because it was all audio is proving more complex than I think they expected. The kind of thing here is, you know, you kind of have to ask, like, where does it stop? It's like Joe Rogan isn't the only one out there with disagreeable opinions. And we're getting into this kind of place where everyone who doesn't agree with everyone else causes some sort of outrage and some sort of protest. You know, I protest Joe Rogan every day by not listening to his podcast. <laughs> but we'll say now, so you mentioned there's other podcasts with disagreeable opinions, but Spotify isn't paying them to be on the platform. I think yeah. that's the big distinction here. And it's kind of caught them, as you said, in between the two. Yeah, I get, I, I, I get, I get how complex this is. I'm not trying to, not trying to diminish it. It is really yeah. complex. And there's like, you know, there's, there's, three, there's basically three music labels in the, in the world and there's plenty of music artists who have very disagreeable opinions. So, you know, Kid Rock is out there spreading misinformation about coronavirus as well. It's, it's becoming this kind of thing. So, but where are you going to direct the rage next? And I, I don't, I'm not against him doing this. Um, I'm just, just kind of I'm trying to kind of contemplate where I sit on this, in this argument and I can't really decide. <laughs> I can tell you've been you've been working hard to get through this in your own head, but I, I, yeah, in deciding, I, really <laughs> I think I'm just tired. I just think I don't want to think about it. But like in deciding, I, I suppose that they were never going to side with Neil Young, you know, cancel their hundred million dollar contract. But in doing so and letting like Neil Young and Joni Mitchell and I saw someone else in India, some someone else big left today as well. Are they saying that podcasts are worth more than them? Like, I don't think there is a music artist in the world that they would have paid a hundred million for their exclusive rights, to their library, you know? Well, it's not, not in terms of overall revenue or listenership, are podcasts more important to them? But in a certain way, they are because unlike the music side of the business, podcasts are a mechanism for Spotify to really differentiate themselves from the kind of copycat services that are out there, namely kind of Apple Music, Amazon Music, Manus, my friend, my friend's Deezer account. <laughs> Man, this is getting loads of mentions in Star Club in recent times. <laughs> it's because it's anytime Spotify comes up, we have to mention it. <laughs> um, 
And like I said, you know, most people only listen to a few podcasts. So just having one exclusive deal can tie millions of people onto your platform. It's also where they have a little bit more wiggle room when it comes to margins, because as we've said many times before, they're very constrained by the royalties that they have to pay to artists and the royalties they have to pay to music labels. Whereas if they can create a kind of Google ads version of an advertising platform for podcasts, that's where they can start really kind of spreading spreading their wings when it comes to revenue generation that they can control the margins of. Yeah. And then did any of this show up in their earnings report this week? It was probably a bit too early for any of this to hit their current earnings report. Their earnings report, I mean, the, the stock was down when I last checked, but so was everything uh, today. Uh, they, they actually had some quite good numbers. So they hit 406 million monthly active users. That was up 18%. Their paying subs were up 16%. Average revenue per user increased for the second quarter in the row, and that's reversing a kind of long-term trend that we've, where we've seen that number decrease because of all their promotional activity. So they're seeing a bit of pricing power and they're seeing a, a change in the kind of revenue mix. And advertising revenue, which is very much linked to this kind of podcast strategy, was up 40% and now accounts for a total of 15% of their revenue. So the, all those numbers are really pointing in the right direction. Now, unfortunately, they didn't provide any annual guidance, which I think we might see a lot of uh, this quarter just because of the uncertainty that's out there. And that seems to have kind of spooked uh, investors along with um, a notable other tech company having an absolute disaster. Yeah, I think anything that sells ads today is going to plummet. <laughs> but uh, we're getting to that later, so we won't delve now. Then moving on. The New York Times announced the acquisition of the widely popular word game Wordle for a figure reported to be in the low seven figures. Not a bad return for its creator, Josh Wardle. See what he did there? Yeah. Who devised the game over lockdown for himself and his partner. Amory, is there substance to this acquisition or is the New York Times just hopping on the bandwagon? I, I doubt many acquisitions of this size have had made as many headlines in the past. Probably not have such small an acquisition made so many headlines, but uh, it is probably a bit of a jumping on the viral trend. But also like Wordle makes sense in the broader New York Times games family. It looks like a New York Times mini crossword or a spelling bee. Actually, the founder of Wordle has repeatedly said that he took a lot of inspiration from the New York Times games and he is famously a huge fan of their crossword. So it's not unusual. I actually said last week prior to this acquisition that I thought that the New York Times would maybe buy Wordle simply based upon like the font that they used in the way it was laid out. I thought it looked like something they already owned. Do you have that in writing or did you just make that up in your head? I have people who were there who could verify it and I will get verification. <laughs> yeah. She's been on about this all week. <laughs> uh, because I was so shocked. It was like the most brilliant thing I've ever done in my life. We'll get we'll get the witnesses on the podcast next week. I will. Ne- yeah, perfect. Okay. But I also think that like Wordle aligns really well with the New York Times games in terms of in terms of its release strategy, you know, like one game a day. It's the same as the crossword. I was about to say the daily aspect of it is perfect. Yeah, like you're not allowed to overuse it. And I think that means that there's a really nice slow burn for this relationship. Um, you know, people aren't allowed to play Wordle for two and a half hours and then be like, oh, do you know what? I'm sick of this. I'm not going to use it anymore. And I think that means that there'll be a lot of longevity to this New York Times and uh, uh, Wordle relationship. I think we're like entering a new phase in kind of all types of media where we're beginning to reappreciate getting something once a day or getting something once a week. We're seeing that with like Euphoria is releasing right now and they're in the middle of their second season. And it just gives them so much more legs in terms of social media. Every day that an episode of Euphoria comes out, it trends worldwide for that entire day. It's the exact same with Wordle. Like, not one day in the last two weeks have I gone on Twitter and not seen Wordle trending because people are just talking about their little matrixes. Interesting. So we're moving away from the binge 
economy. Yeah, I think so. Interesting. All right. Uh, we talked in the pod a few weeks back about New York Times buyout of the Athletic as well. And just coming from the earnings report this week, New York Times reached its goal of 10 million subscribers three years early. So is this acquisition strategy kind of key to this growth? They've set a new target now of 15 million subscribers by 2027. I would see the Wordle acquisition as less of a direct push for paid subscribers and more a push probably for email addresses. Because in order to save your progress on the New York Times' existing games, you need to create a free account. And as anyone who has played Wordle knows, half of the fun is sharing your completed matrix every day and checking in with your overall win percentage. So I guarantee that at some point in the future, once this acquisition goes through, you will need to probably have a free New York Times account in order to take advantage of those features. And probably the New York Times is thinking that's a great way to engage with new people and send membership offers via email. That's kind of famously how they onboard people, sending you that offer of, hey, the New York Times is only $1 a week. Do you want to give it a go for a year? So I think that is interesting. But I also think like we'll probably continue to see more New York Times acquisitions moving forward. They're trying to kind of be the everyman. And that means that they're going to start to need to look into niches in order to gain access to other populations. If I'm going to hazard a guess here, I'll make this prediction on the podcast. So we have proof of it. Okay. Somebody get this in right now. Here we go. If I was going to hazard a guess, I'd say that the New York Times maybe wants to build out its kind of funtertainment multimedia explanatory content that has been made really popular by Vice and Vox and Refinery29. The New York Times already has Opdocs, which they put on YouTube, but they're very somber in tone. I think they need kind of a more kind of upbeat and fun version of that. That being said, I don't think that they would acquire Vox or Vice. They're really big and they probably are not in the mood to be acquired. But I would expect them to maybe go after some of the well-loved journalists from those niches. And by that, I mean that that format means that you see the same kind of on-camera personas recurring every two weeks to three weeks in their YouTube videos. And it often means that people will be fans of the journalists, regardless of what type of content they're putting out. And I think that could be a real opportunity for the New York Times to go in and poach those journalists and bring them over to the Times. We saw that already in 2020 with Ezra Klein, who's the founder of Vox. And um, he'd been at the company for eight years and he walked away and joined the New York Times and now runs a very successful podcast for them and their opinion column. So that's what I expect to see going forward. Interesting. That's not unlike uh, the athletic strategy and, and picking up local journalists across America. Yeah, that's kind of where I got the idea from. And I think that's <laughs> what we'll see moving forward, the kind of uh, journalist slash influencer model. Very good. Right, moving on then. Uh, we're doing something a bit different for earnings season this week. So I'm going to give you a name that reported in the past week, and I want you to give me a quick synopsis of their earnings. So basically like a too long, didn't read version for our listeners. Does that sound good? Yes, Mike, sounds good. Cool. Okay. <laughs> um, Rory, I'm going to start me, start with you. Tell me why PayPal fell 25% yesterday. Oh, bad, bad report by PayPal. I think quite a bit of it was a bit of mismanagement of kind of the hand-holding aspects in terms of where they were talking, how the company was talking to investors. The ending of the relationship with eBay has had a much bigger impact than management, I think, prepared investors for they're kind of coming out of the pandemic with those with kind of tailwinds that they had not really pushing them forward as much as that as 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 much as people thought growth of uh, net new active accounts was way below expectation and in saying that they ended up removing 4.5 million accounts that they basically believed were either kind of fraud accounts or 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 or, uh, or bad accounts um but now the company's only expected to add 15 to 20 million new accounts this year so it's doing a big u-turn 
and a kind of incentive strategy that they were there that they had in mind where they were going to add a, a, a lot more users and now they're kind of turning doing a u-turn on that and focusing much more on serving their current users it's definitely spooked investors it's it's never a good sign when a growth story seems to be turning into a value story and i think that's definitely what's happened here yeah and it seems to send a lot of other digital payments companies down with it Keeping on the good vibes, you also took a look at Robinhood, who seemed to have provided further disappointment for investors. <sighs> further disappointment is a bit of an understatement. There was practically <laughs> nothing to like in this report at all. I know I've been hard on the company beforehand uh, on a kind of cultural level, but this was a real car crash. Net cumulative account funded accounts have basically been flat now for three quarters. Their assets under, co- under custody have been flat for three quarters. Average revenue per user has been cut in half since the since the first quarter of last year, where their growth that was coming from cryptocurrency has basically just completely stalled. Uh, revenues have been cut in half since the meme stock mania of early last year. And on top of that, their costs have skyrocketed. It, it, I, I really can't believe it's not 10 more than, it's older than it has been. <laughs> Lovely. Yeah, well, I, their IPO was time to kind of come right after that meme stock so it was a me it was an ipo of opportunity and you know yeah. lots of companies do that can't you know can't blame them for that but no. um yeah it's can't yeah. blame them for being down about 75 percent it's they were near closer to near down 90 percent at one stage it kind of really kind of makes you laugh at this idea that they were doing people a favor by letting them participate in the ipo oh jeez. <laughs> right moving on to uh some less <laughs> dour news amory you dove into google's earnings who uh posted some huge numbers tell us more can we actually start with facebook sorry we, about that we can we can start with facebook i was trying to lift the mood but let's let's yeah, stay no. down in this we want to stay down and we want to come up with google at the end okay, because, okay. okay here we go also mine is not so much quick fire but we're going to accelerate through so facebook had two huge issues in this quarterly report that are worth noting number one decline in users for the first time in Facebook's 17-year history, it experienced a decline in global users. It lost half a million daily active users. And while that may seem like nothing, considering Facebook has 1.9 billion total daily active users, it's really shocking to see for a company that has quite literally experienced growth every single quarter since going public. Really, this can be chalked up to two things. Number one, that famous quote, when Alexander saw the breath of his dominion, he wept for there were no more worlds to conquer. Facebook is pretty much in every country on the planet right now. Um, when there was a decline in rev- when there was a decline in user growth in North America, it was always made f- made up for by other regions. There's pretty much no regions left, so that's issue number one. And issue number two is that it is very unpopular with young people. I spoke about this at the beginning of the year, but kids love TikTok, and they're not making Facebook accounts. The only growth that we saw in North America was in the 55 plus segment, and that should be an indication that your social media is dying. And actually, Mark Zuckerberg said this directly on uh, the call. He said, quote, what's unique is that TikTok is so big as a competitor already and also continues to grow at quite a fast rate off of a very large user base. And Zuckerberg went on to say, I think overall engagement will grow. And that's why we're optimistic about the future. But there's a lot of work to do here. So we this could be, you know, a, a decline for quite a while. And then on top of that, Facebook had a pretty bad advertising quarter as well, which is, as we all know, 98% of Facebook or Meta's revenue comes from advertising. So if they're not doing well there, they're not really doing well anywhere. Do you think IDFA and the iOS 14.5 update was a big factor in that? 
yeah, that's pretty much the most important factor. Well, at least according to officials um, within the company, as per usual, they tended to blame outside factors. Um, CFO David Weiner said, we believe the impact of iOS overall as a headwind to our business in 2022 is on the order of $10 billion. So while we're only beginning to see the impacts, the impacts down the line could be much more significant. And while revenue did grow by 20% this quarter, they had to adjust their expectations for their 2022 fiscal year. And um, for quarter one of that year, they're only expecting revenue growth of between three and eleven percent, and that sent analysts running for the hills. So it was a it was a pretty bad quarter for Facebook. Mm, not just from Facebook as well, from any business selling ads, it seemed that they were all plummeting. Yeah. Right. Moving on to the other advertising giant in the room who is not plummeting, Google. Yeah. Tell us more about that. Yeah, so Google, uh, like similar to Facebook, makes a tremendous amount of money off its ads. 81% of its revenue comes from there. But they actually had a pretty solid quarter. And I would chalk that up to diversification within its advertising. So for Q4, revenue was up 32%, while profit was up 36%. And um, they saw growth in two really interesting areas. um, And they talked about it on their call, which is e-commerce and connected TV, which are kind of some dark horses for them. Apparently, a couple months ago, Google changed the way it allows retailers to list products in the hopes that it would entice more users to start shopping via Google search and YouTube search, which gives Google greater control, obviously, of ads because they can collect more data that way than being dependent on IDFA tracking um, through Apple. And Morgan Stanley has found that since May, the number of shoppers starting their journey on a Google product has increased, while the percentage of Amazon Prime users starting their searches on Amazon has decreased. So that does seem to be having a pretty nice impact in terms of e-commerce ad revenue. And then the second place that they've started focusing is connected TV, which would mean that their approach is quite similar to Roku, where they're trying to create targeted advertising within ad-supported streaming. This is kind of a new place, but it is very, very rapidly growing. And when Google has a Chromecast in your home, it means that they own a portion of all ads um, that come through that Chromecast, regardless of what um, app or channel you're using. In addition to think of all the ad space that they generate using YouTube TV. So that is a huge opportunity for them. Um, And they talked about it quite considerably on their call. And I would expect them to continue to have growth in that area. And then, of course, Google also has its cloud business. It's much smaller. They're currently behind Amazon and Microsoft in terms of market share. They only control about 9% globally, but they saw revenue in that segment grow by 45% this quarter. So that's always a nice little cushion in case the ad revenue ever dries up. Just in case. I saw YouTube was taking in more money than Netflix. Yeah. Yeah. It was like almost a billion dollars more. It's crazy. Yeah. Rory, are you a bit sickened you missed out on the Alexander the Great quote? Put it in you. (laughs) Yeah, yeah, that was <laughs> I definitely did have a little bit of an eye oh <laughs> She's raising the bar again. Right. Um so what's going on in my Wall Street at the minute? Uh Amory, you wrote a new long form piece for the My Wall Street app titled Cautionary Tales. This is very ominous. Could you give our listeners a bit more information there and maybe tease it so they go and read it? Yeah. So I wrote a piece about MoviePass. Basically, it's rise and fall. It's it's complete history. It's much more detailed than any Wikipedia page will ever be. And for that reason, it got away from me a bit. I think it's it's coming up on uh, three and a half thousand words or something like that. So I had to cut it in half. So the first half is up now. The second half will be up on Friday. It is insane what happened in this company. It is truly insane. The things that they did, it is 100% worth reading, even if you don't like investing or stocks. It's It's crazy. Very good. If you want to check this out, along with our full shortlist of handpicked stocks and more great investing analysis, just go to mywallstreet.com and sign up. Right, for this week's mailbag, we have a question about ESG investing. Rory, can you elaborate on exactly what ESG means and whether it's going to be a necessary addition to our portfolios? Yeah, so ESG is 
a very kind of hot button topic at the moment in the world of investing it actually stands for environmental social and governance and various ways people have tried to kind of come up with a scoring system to figure out how we would kind of rank businesses in this sort of space um, and the reason that they have been trying to do that for so long is because it's a very very profitable uh, business to be in right now it's anticipated that 53 trillion dollars will be managed under a kind of esg strategy by 2025 new investors are all about esg investing nine out of ten millennials claim they want their investments to align with good esg practices and so we've we've had a kind of couple of questions about this before and in terms of how do we monitor this and how do we align our investment strategy with our own kind of personal values and unfortunately the the sad uh, answer to that is there's no real easy way to do it as i said there's an awful lot of money in this esg movement and wherever there's money you will tend to find an awful lot of people trying to get a bit of that money and they'll go about it in ways that perhaps aren't very much aligned with what you think it should be the biggest problem by far is that's very hard to find reliable information relating to a company's esg standards one of the reasons for that is is because it's too easy to claim you have good standards so every company does it all the time they literally just have people in there working on press releases all day every day putting out claims about them doing something good environmentally or something good in terms of you know the makeup of their diversity but there's very little regulation around it it's practically non-existent so even though we have very strict codes in place regarding how a company reports financial data there's very little in terms of regulation or reporting on these kind of matters you know and, and at the moment there doesn't seem to be any sort of mechanism or any sort of kind of roadmap for how we're going to create such because if it is something that people are investing in if, it's, if that's the thing that they want to invest in then companies have a kind of obligation to be straightforward with them about it and they're and they're just not and i think if you were to take what is usually a kind of easy route to get in to a new area of investing which is go and find an etf that is focused on that area and kind of look at its holdings i think a lot of people would be very kind of shocked at the companies that rank high on esg and those companies would not particularly align with what their understanding of a good esg business is so yeah it's this is what that's what it means i it, i think it's important for people to find businesses that align with their own personal belief systems but i can't there's no real shortcut for it you really do have to go and kind of figure it out yourself at the moment very good i know blackrock are huge components of it they kind of brought out they they, they changed their whole investment strategy towards it didn't they but it seems yeah. like there's still some kinks to be ironed out this is the exactly the thing a lot of a lot of banks a lot of funds have said like they're going to do this they're not going to invest in oil companies anymore yet they still have loads of loads of interest in in oil companies or companies that service oil companies goldman sachs has said it's not going to take any companies public that don't have a diverse board i haven't really been keeping track of, of, of whether they've been doing that or not but there's no there's a lot of people putting out a lot of statements but it's still not really as kind of as tangible as you'd hope it would be yeah so still a bit raw. Okay, very good. Thanks for that question. Then we've just got the elevator pitch, lads. I'm going to keep it simple for this week. I just want you to pitch a stock you've been researching. Anne-Marie, start with you. I am researching a stock that I've researched previously. I'm kind of checking back in, if you will. Um, and Re-re-researching. Yeah. 
And that uh, stock is BarkBox, which is ticker symbol is Bark, B-A-R-K. Um, I originally wrote a first look on them, which is in the app on June of 2021, um, which was, I think, quite literally like the week that its initial SPAC documentation had been released. So it went public several weeks after that. Well, they have an earnings call coming up on February 10th, and I am quite interested in it because they released some preliminary results from it about two weeks ago, and it showed that they had revenue of $140 million, which is a jump of 33%, um, and it exceeds pretty much every analyst's expectations for what their revenue is supposed to look like. They launched a bunch of new services in 2021, uh, like a subscription for dog food and a subscription for dog dental kits. I'm excited to see um, what that looks like, and uh, as we we all know dog and pet spending is uh it's a uh, pretty resilient and i know that we haven't seen this business model so much with pets before in terms of a subscription service um so i'm excited to see if there is longevity in this as well and then it could be a, a pretty interesting little stock very good i always wonder what what monster would cancel their pets subscription box yeah <laughs> the kids they just have this vision of the dog sitting at the door waiting for it to arrive <laughs> The dog, the dog knows the day it comes. Yeah, <laughs> that's awful. That should just be the whole investor pitch: is a video of a dog not getting the. Yeah, box. yeah, yeah. That they should send that to to people who try to unsubscribe. Oh, <laughs> uh, we need to email them, uh, Rory. <laughs> Stock your research in at the minute. I'm taking a look at a company called Marketa. It's a company that allows other companies to offer essentially kind of Visa or MasterCard payment products to customers without having to kind of deal directly with a traditional bank. It's been called by some the fintech of fintech companies. They've got some really, so basically they, they have an API that lets you plug in and, and create kind of payment products like debit cards, credit cards, tokenized payment systems, all this. They've got some big customers in the form of like Goldman Sachs, Square is a major customer, DoorDash uh, uses them. They, they're actually quite big. They've issued uh, 320 million cards, or the fact that, that more than that, that was, that was pre-IPO numbers. And in 2020, they processed 1.6 billion transactions. They've very much gone down the route of making their tools kind of developer-friendly, so there's a real kind of Twilio culture in there. The only kind of problem I have, well, there's a couple of problems I have at the moment, which is one is that they're incredibly uh, highly concentrated in a couple of customers, which is not what you want to see. Uh, and there's an awful lot of competition out there. So you think the like kind of Plaid and uh, SoFi have bought themselves a kind of similar business a couple of years ago. But yeah, interesting business with a kind of, I think kind of strong leadership team, but not haven't pulled the trigger on it yet. Yeah, I remember looking at them a while back and there were huge customer concentration around Square. Mm, yeah, very high in Square. The kind of question was, why wouldn't Square buy them instead of letting them go public by themselves? Yeah. Or what? And if if you know if it's such a big part of these big companies' future, they could build the tech themselves, I suppose as well. Yeah. Okay. Very good. Two interesting companies there. That's it for today's show. Remember, lads, if you have any questions you'd like answered or elevator pitches you'd like us to tackle, make sure to get in touch. You can find us on Twitter at mywallstreethq, on TikTok that's at mywallstreet, or simply just email us at pod at mywallstreet.com. If you're enjoying the show, make sure to tell your friends about us and don't forget to leave a review for us on whatever podcast platform you listen to us on. Thanks for joining us today and we'll talk to you next week. My business used to be weighed down by the complexities of in-person payments. Then, Tap to Pay on iPhone and Stripe came along 
and changed everything. With Tap to Pay on iPhone and Stripe, I streamlined my payment process effortlessly. Now I can accept in-person, contactless payments right from my iPhone. No extra hardware required. What's truly remarkable is how I can cater to all of my customers' payment preferences. Whether they're using cards, Apple Pay, or other digital wallets, Tap to Pay on iPhone and Stripe ensure a smooth checkout experience every time. And it's not just me. Stripe helps businesses of all sizes, from local markets to global retailers, scale quickly and stay agile. To learn how Tap to Pay on iPhone and Stripe can help grow your revenue and reach, visit stripe.com slash tap iPhone.